0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. This is an interesting one, folks. I stumbled upon uh, our guest when I read an article. I, I have a Google, I've mentioned this before, but I have a Google alert on the words meditation and mindfulness, so I get... All sorts of interesting articles about the meditation and mindfulness space in my inbox every day. And I saw an article in the Deseret News, which is the big newspaper in Salt Lake City, Utah. And the headline was, What a Mormon Doing Buddhist Meditation Has to Do with the Future of Faith. And it was about this guy, Thomas McConkie, who had spent many – who grew up in the Mormon community and then went off and spent many, many years – Doing uh, Buddhist meditation, seriously engaged with the practice, and then came back to Salt Lake City uh, to this very Mormon community and has started a quite a successful a little Buddhist meditation group called Lower Lights. And so I, I can only imagine uh, – I, I could only imagine as I read this article what an interesting – amalgamation of cultures and beliefs and practices. This would be because I've spent some time as a reporter at ABC News covering uh, the Mormon community, and so I was really surprised that this was happening and intrigued. And I finally got Thomas uh, into the studio, and you're going to hear uh, a really interesting conversation uh, coming up. First, though, one item of business, and uh, then your calls. The item of business: I mentioned this uh on a previous podcast, but I want to mention it again just in case you weren't listening. And if you weren't listening, shame on you. We're doing a survey. We're we want to uh take the podcast to the next level and we want your help. So we're running a survey on ten percenthappier.com slash survey. If you've got a few minutes and you want to do us a solid, go there and answer a few questions about, you know, what we can do better, what more you'd like to learn from the show other people you'd want to hear from, other formats that we might move into, 10 com slash survey. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, let's do your calls. Here's call number one. Oh, wait, wait, before I take the call, i got to do my caveat. not a mental health professional, not a meditation teacher. Uh, I haven't heard these calls in advance. I'm just a reporter and a meditator doing my best to stay warm in a cold world. Uh, all right, here's number one.
1: Hi, this is Frances. I have been meditating regularly now with the 10% happier app thanks to you. And I really appreciate it as it has changed my life a lot. I read your first book and I'm now reading the second book. I've got two questions. One, just a little housekeeping type question. When somebody tweets to you, does it, does it go to somebody who, who reads them? Just curious because I know I don't usually get a response, but I thought maybe you're somebody in the 10% happier is looking at them or reading them. And then the next one is, I noticed there aren't any meditations having to do with grief. And I experienced um, a profound grief this year uh, with a death, sudden death of a young person and wondered if there are any meditations that directly address this and how to meditate on and think about that and cope with it. All right. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Two great questions. Let me start with the second one first. First of all, I'm very sorry for your loss. A grief is, for pretty much everybody, an unavoidable fact of life, but it doesn't make it easy. So again, I'm sorry, but I want to thank you for pointing out a deficiency or let's just say an oversight on the 10% Happier app. We should be, we should have meditations on grief and we will. So thank you for that suggestion. We will act on it. I do want to tell you though, that we did a podcast dedicated to the issue of meditation and grief. The guest's name was Joe DiNardo. Joe DiNardo. He wrote letter to my wife. And it was one of the podcasts where we got an enormous amount of feedback. He, he lost his wife. We got an enormous amount of feedback after posting that podcast about how moving it was. So go ch- check that out. It might, it might be useful for you if you're interested. As to this first question, uh, Twitter. So I am reasonably good. I wouldn't say 100% good, but like reasonably good at checking w- Twitter. Uh I am awful at replying. Once in a while if I'm in the mood I will reply or if I have the bandwidth to do it. Often I'll just like like press the like button on ones that I like um unless there are people saying really mean things to me. Sometimes I like those too and it's actually, it actually turns out to be a great way to annoy people who've uh been trolling you. I think I think and I say this with you know 90% confidence there is somebody from the company who actually looks through And if there is a specific question related to the podcast or the company or the app, uh, we'll answer them and follow up the way you can up the chances of that to a hundred percent is to add to, or tag in, I don't know if that's the right word in a Twitter sense, add at 10%. So if you tweet me and it's, and it's to me at Dan B. Harris, and then you add at 10% somewhere in there, then I'm almost positive. I'm, I'm actually positive somebody from the company will see that. So, yeah, I wish I was better at you know I, I don't even look at my Facebook messages. So I'm, I, I'm Twitter is where I'm at at my best in terms of responsiveness. But you know, I also have a huge stack of unopened mail in my office. I I am not the best at at uh, responding. That's largely because I'm overloaded and. That's something I'm working on. Anyway, that's, I'm oversharing.
1: Let's go to Second Call. Here we go. Hello, my name is Lawrence. I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan. as a former evangelical Christian and trained as a minister and eventually became an atheist. And now I'm into this, I guess we call it a secular Buddhism. I'm kind of curious about the community kind of stuff like weddings and funerals and other rites of passages and, and whether this is just kind of an individual thing or more of a community thing. Thanks for answering. Thanks for your podcast and your app.:
0: Wow, you got a great story. That's a cool call. Well, a lot to say. So I too, I would call myself a secular Buddhist, but I take the Buddhist part very seriously. i also take the secular part pretty damn seriously, too. The Buddha said there were three big parts of his teaching. Uh, there was the Buddha. There was the Dharma, which is you know uh, uh, the the words he, he, he actually the the the, the practices and the ideas that he promulgated. And then there's the Sangha. That word is spelled S A N G H A, I believe, and that means the community. They're all, you know, there wasn't what one wasn't bigger than the other. I mean, they're all important. And so the sangha among us modern day meditators is often and I include myself in this, overlooked and underemphasized. But it is, you know, if you if you put a lot of weight in the words the Buddha said, and I'm not arguing you, the listener, need to, you know, treat everything you said as gospel, but if you you know, if you think that it might have some importance, that's a pretty Powerful argument he was making the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. They called it the three jewels. Uh, so I, there's a lot to be said for having a community of people with whom you practice and with whom you do this life. And in those, depending on the Sangha, there are, you know, Sanghas where, you know, you can do the rituals of life together, you know, around death, around marriage, around birth. And that can be very powerful. As I said, I am not great at this. I mean, I have a – because of the kind of life I lead in that, you know, I have a meditation podcast and I have a lot of friends who are meditators and teachers and I'm a co-founder of a meditation app company. I, I am – in. I have a kind of ad hoc sangha, but I don't have a formal one where I'm, you know, really regularly seeing the same people and deeply involved in their lives and and – you know, marking the, you know, the the big personal landmarks, the deaths, the births, the marriages, et cetera, et cetera, the the dissolution of marriages with them. And I think that's a, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And um, so my advice to you would be to look around and perhaps see if there is a sangha locally with which you'd like to engage. It is the truth that in some parts of the country and the world, there are no options but uh, my understanding is there are some online options, and um, I don't know much about that. I say that without knowing much about it. Our goal at 10% is ultimately to start building that out. You know, we have the beginnings of that now where on the app, you know, you can talk to a coach directly and really our coaches are experienced meditators, and they will engage with you as much as you want. They really will. But it's not quite the same as an, you know a true online community of people, but... You know, over time, our goal is to really build something toward that because the community part of this thing—having other people around you who normalize the practice, who hold you accountable—that that that is a—it's—it's hard to overstate what a in in my experience what a powerful thing that is. So great question, and uh, look, hopefully that's something for you to explore. All right, speaking of sanghas, and I suppose that call was placed where it was because my brilliant producers knew it would lead to this segue. We're going to talk about a interesting meditation community or sangha in, of all places, Salt Lake City, Utah, capital of the American Mormon community. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've spent quite a bit of time reporting on uh, the Mormon Church and even some of the very controversial breakaway splinter Mormon so-called fundamentalists who still uh, do polygamy, uh, which, which, by the way, was outlawed by the mainline uh, mainstream Mormon Church, you know, decades and decades and decades ago. Um, but I've interviewed uh, apostles of the main mainline uh, Mormon Church, and I, I once visited a Mormon temple, which is off limits to non-Mormons. But it was before they opened for business, so that was a really interesting thing to be able to walk through a Mormon temple. And so I've had a little bit of exposure to this made in America religion. Uh, a lot of that reporting was done around the time when Mitt Romney was running for president, and we got really interested in what Mormon and Mormonism is, and, and so I got a real education in that. And so, you know, this is, this is a faith that really that there's a high, high level of orthodoxy. If you're in the Mormon church, you know, it, 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 you don't find a lot of casual Mormons from what I can tell. And so I was so interested when I heard that there was a th- kind of a thriving – buddhist meditation group in salt lake city founded by a, a a guy who calls himself a mormon and and populated by many people who are active practicing believing mormons so i i wanted to know how does this work and what what was the founder's story and so finally thomas mcconkey who uh, as we said lives in salt lake city and found himself in new york city and i got him into the studio and here's what he had to say first of all thank you for coming
2: on we've been trying to set this up for a while <laughs> totally um How did you get interested in meditation? I was 18 years old. I'd had a pretty big falling out in the Mormon church. I was raised Mormon in Salt Lake City, Utah, Mecca, where there's still to this day a huge concentration of Latter-day Saints, of Mormons. And I had a falling out with my family, with my church, my community. I mean, when you fall out of the church in that concentrated an environment, it's not just, you know, you don't see people while they're at church at Sundays. It affects 24 hours of your day, seven days a week. And I went through a kind of rowdy adolescence, just, you know, trying to sort it out. But by age 18, I realized there was a really intense hunger and I needed something to you know, channel my devotion towards that was the environment I was in. Mormonism wasn't going to work for me, and I happened to stumble across a Zen center in downtown Salt Lake, so there is such a thing uh there absolutely there was uh Kanzion Zen Center was the name of that particular Zen center, and it was the biggest order of Zen Buddhism outside of Osaka, Japan, in the whole world at the time, so it was in its heyday. And there were Buddhist masters hanging out, you know, just a few blocks up from the Mormon temple in downtown Salt Lake. And I was really fortunate to, you know, find some support from them and, you know, plant my feet on the path, so as did they say. You, did you
0: did you start practicing with them there? Did you go overseas or what? what, or what how did uh, it go? I,
2: I did both. Eventually, I started practicing in downtown Salt Lake, just at the Zen Center there. And I really took to the practice. I, I needed it. I needed something to really, you know settle me down and i was i felt so committed to buddhism after a short time that i just decided to move to china like you know let's (laughs) let's return to the the fountainhead of the wisdom stream so i I spent a few years in mainland china as well skipping college uh i ended up studying mandarin there and transferring credits so it didn't totally derail my life most mormons if not all practicing Mormons do a missionary year abroad? Many, two years. It's a two-year two mission, and I, like I said, I, I had been out of the tradition for quite some time. So you didn't do that? I didn't do a mission, but it, it made sense for me to get really far away from Utah, because even though I was studying Buddhism and was really finding myself in it, it was still a really painful place to be.
0: What was the reaction of your folks, your family, to, to <laughs> you studying at the Zen Center and then going to China to study more?
2: Oh, it was all sorts of edgy. I mean, and this is back, I mean, this was before the year 2000. I mean, meditation was not mainstream at the time, let alone in a conservative bastion like Salt Lake City. So it, it was edgy, and, you know, I don't think people were thrilled about it. I think it was even threatening on some levels because it was so alien to our way of life there. But I, I knew there was something in it. The the people I w- was meeting, just, you know, the qualities they emanated as human beings, I could tell whatever practice they were doing, it had done something to them. And I was curious. And, you know, after a short time of getting into my own practice as a teenager, I, you know, subtle things like I was, you know, approaching 10% happier, right? (laughs) Like little adjustments. And I wasn't so anxious all the time and I was sleeping a little bit better and so on and so forth. So I, you know, I really took to the path early on and felt committed to it.
0: How would you describe for people who are completely unfamiliar with it, Zen practice. What what were you doing in your mind during this practice, and what impact did it have on you?
2: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, and just to give a little background, Zen wasn't the only lineage of Buddhism I practiced in or have practiced in, but in that particular school, that's that is a it's an unusual school, and that the founder of Kanshion Genpo Roshi, he innovated an approach to meditation that he calls Big Mind. And it involves voice dialogue, which is a Jungian psychotherapeutic technique that, you know, came from a couple named Helen Sidra Stone in Los Angeles back in the 70s. So we were we were. You know, it was a kind of uh, interdisciplinary Zen center. So there was a lot of voice dialogue, which would be a whole other conversation. But then you have your standard Zen diet of koan practice, where the teacher hurls a riddle at you that the, the rational mind can't answer, and it jams all your circuits, and you spend a lot of time just sitting still on your cushion and watching your breath and, you know, watching thoughts and sensations come up and pass. So it's a lot of just that, a lot of the classical you know, meditation techniques, you know, come to bear on Zen as well. How does the koan
0: interact with, because you you described two things there. You described the koan, which is a riddle that Zen masters will give you. It, as you say, jams your circuits and (laughs) it really gets you, it knocks you out of normal sort Mm -hmm. of discursive, habitual ways of thinking. Right. But then you also described sitting, watching your breath, and then watching whatever feelings and, and thoughts come up. I think most listeners to this show that's kind of meditation they do. They just kind of yeah. feel their breath coming in, and when they get lost, they start again. How does the koan interact with that, or are they two separate practices?
2: Uh, it's a good question. I think on one hand they're separate, and on one hand, on the other hand, they're this one and the same practice. For I can speak from my you know relatively little experience compared to some, but the. The koan, it has a way of bringing your thinking mind to its knees, so to speak. You you realize after struggling with the koan long enough that the answers you're looking for aren't up here. And so you start to train yourself, like when you're sitting still and facing challenges in your practice, facing challenges in life, that you're not going to, I like to say, you're not going to think your way out of a think hole. And the koan's good at showing you that. It, it, It frustrates our, our normal uh, path to trying to solve something and a different kind of action tends to arise out of that. I love the expression think hole because
0: (laughs) it's awesome. It sounds like you're saying sinkhole with a (laughs) list, but I see that so much in my own practice just, and I I usually note it, you know, I make you make a little mental note of whatever's happening, at least the the way I've been taught meditation is Mm -hmm. so you feel your breath coming in and going out and then you're going to get distracted a million times and it helps for me at least, to make a little quiet mental note of whatever has just carried you away. But often it's just random thinking. But think whole actually adds another (laughs) layer because it's so seductive. It's got a quicksand uh, aspect to it.
2: Right, exactly. And, you know, more thinking leads to more thinking leads to more thinking. Yes. yes. And you're in a hole, and when you're in that hole, it doesn't even occur to you how you got there, which is by thinking. (laughs) Right. So So the little note of think hole, actually, I think, can knock you out of it. Yeah, it's a little rope you can, you know, toss out and hopefully climb back out of. Exactly. So
0: but I guess uh, technically and the koan versus the sort of straight up sort of basic breath practice, Mm -hmm. you do them at different times. You you may sit down and say, oh, I'm doing koan work now. the next hour I'm going to do straight up meditation or is it, or do they intermingle even on the cushion?
2: My experience is they start to really coalesce over time and and you're still sitting when you're just sitting still, the, the koan bubbles up at different times, you know? So, and, um, so th- this spoke to you,
0: obviously, on a deep level. Sent you overseas, although you might not been trying to escape, uh, also. But I think escaping <laughs> was
2: more important than enlightenment <laughs> to me at that point. But it worked, you know. So two what, birds. what happened
0: then? Like, did you keep? Did you like get a traditional career and start working in that, or did you stay in the in the practice?
2: I did. I did both. I did both. Uh, you know, I, in China, I was, I was a student and learning Mandarin, but also really dedicating myself to a Buddhist practice and. A lot of people were doing Tai Chi, which I hadn't anticipated. So I started learning Tai Chi. And um, I ended up uh, doing two years of uh, coursework as an undergrad in China and then going on to be a consultant in China and, you know, living in other parts of the world as well. But the the daily meditation practice was really a lifeline for many, many years. And did you stay in the Zen school? Uh, You know, it was, I would say, after the first, few years of Zen practice, I started to drift towards a more kind of what a lot of The people listening to the show would identify as just like a a standard meat and potatoes meditation practice. I was watching my breath. I was letting things come and go. I wasn't, you know, working with a koan so much. I wasn't interfacing with a Zen teacher at that time. And then a big turning point, uh, another guest you've had on the show who I revere and who i have had a really meaningful relationship with is Shinzen Yang. Oh, yeah. So I met him back in 2005, and he did a lot to shape my practice and help me pick the Zen back up. He holds Zen very deeply deeply he's not transmitted in that lineage he doesn't hold an official post but he he holds the tradition deeply and has blended it really beautifully with other traditions so
0: so the twist in your story though is (laughs) that (laughs) so it is is so surprising because you you, you hear lots of stories about people who grow up in a tradition uh, they believed in the tradition and then they stop believing in it and maybe take up meditation as like some sort of alternative Alternate spirituality or source of meaning or right. spiritual practice. But for you, right. you did all this meditation for a couple of decades and then you came back to Mormonism. Yeah. Talk me through that process. Ill advisedly.
2: No, I mean, <laughs> I, I was surprised. I, um, it, and it was, it, there was kind of a specific turning point in my life and my practice where if I look back on I didn't know it at the time, but if I look back, in hindsight, there was a moment where where things turned a little bit. Um, I was studying, with, you know, at Shinzen's advice um, with Shinzen Zen teacher Joshu Sasaki Roshi, who who passed away a few years ago. But I was really fortunate to get to study with him for the few years before he died. I, I had an experience with Sasaki Roshi um, at a, an intensive Zen retreat where my life, all of a sudden, in a single moment kind of came to the head of a pin it became very simple very simple and a lot of the scripts that had been running in the background in my consciousness that were so embedded I didn't even really know that they were there so much of the pain that I'd carried around the cellular memory of you know growing up in a really traditional society and feeling cast out by it it's like it kind of evaporated In a moment. And not that it didn't leave residue. I was still, you know, a flawed human being with, you know, scars and all that stuff. But everything got really simple. And I literally just drifted back into a Mormon chapel a few days after that experience. And I connect them because I remember sitting in this Mormon chapel and kind of looking around me like, how on earth did I get here? Like, I would have never expected myself to be in this place on a Sunday morning, somewhere something I'd left behind so thoroughly so long ago, and at a deep intuitive level, it w- I just knew that's where my new practice was. I knew if I was really going to heal, I knew if I was really going to get my life back, that I had to be able to sit in the belly of the beast, which for me was Mormon church.
0: No, but does that mean you? the practice for you was to sit and to coexist peaceably with your I guess, ostensibly co-religionists and maybe even your family members, or yeah. did you buy the orthodoxy? Because Mormonism, and I'm not an expert, but I've done some reporting on, on Mormonism, is yeah. they, there are some elaborate claims.
2: Yes, indeed. I mean, my friends who know me best back home joke that I'm a Budeo Mormon and I'm some, like, manifestation of a hybrid practice that's not well recognized yet. Um, so uh, I'm not necessarily the voice of Orthodox Mormonism. There are far more qualified people to talk to about that topic. But I, yes to the first question, for sure. I, I was there and I knew enough about meditation practice that it's not just when I'm sitting still. Meditation practice is moment to moment how I'm meeting life. And this was a particular kind of practice for me. You could call it trigger practice where yeah. I, was, I was intentionally going to a highly triggering and activating environment where, I mean, I, it felt like annihilatory threat to my wow. being to be back there. But I had enough momentum in my practice like, okay, but, let, let me see how this sense of annihilation comes up in my body, the the challenging emotions, the negative thinking. And I just on this impulse, I, I, as they say in Buddhism, I sat with it. It really changed me.
0: Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment. In one app, you'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs mysteries and thrillers motivation wellness business and more audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener the selection over on audible when it comes to true crime mystery and thriller is um, quite extensive they've got john grisham tons of stuff by stephen king david baldacci My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepthi Kapoor is a a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month. To keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. whole wheat, pita pockets, and more. I am constantly consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. So all of that I get, Mm -hmm. but I just want to get to the orthodoxy for a second. (laughs) Because Joseph Smith... yes uh the founder of mormonism uh-huh. uh talked about the golden um plates plates yeah. that he dug up mm-hmm. guided by an now i'm working from recall here but he was guided by an angel who appeared to him in his bedroom in upstate new york l- took him to a, a hill mm-hmm. and he dug up these golden plates mm-hmm. translated them mm-hmm. and then we got the book of mormon and then a few other books later on that i don't know if they came from the plates or from yeah. revelation of another variety but uh, do you believe that story is true
2: what i believe having you know been in that environment my whole life in and out is that there's a real power in the mormon tradition what you see now in modern mormonism is a whole spectrum of people who relate to the church and its teachings literally other people who relate to it on different levels and feel a certain metaphorical resonance and so on and so forth i I wouldn't say that I would reduce all of the Mormon Church's truth claims to metaphor. I think that's a mistake. But I also think there's something more subtle than just a strictly literal, this is what happened historically. I think there's something subtle in there that we don't exactly understand just yet. I think Joseph Smith had spiritual experience, and through that consciousness that was filtered through that particular mind and that part of the world and so forth— he wanted to share a message of how people can live joyful lives. And I've tasted of that joy in Mormonism and have a real profound respect for it.
0: The so, the My understanding, again, based on sort of some reporting but not a ton of reporting uh, in the Mormon community, was that actually that the level of orthodoxy was very high. That your basic—that if you—I was always under the impression that there wasn't a huge gradation where you had people like in the Catholic Church who right. started to— you know whole wings of the catholic church with that whole huge swaths of the population that view it all sort of metaphorically but i right, thought in, right. the, in the mormon church it was really about like if you're in it you're in it you you believe uh you believe it you know chapter and verse
2: i think that's true and mormonism is a young religion relatively speaking 180 some odd years old almost 190 years old if i'm not going to do the math right here on the spot but <laughs> it's young compared to let's say you know judaism Um, there's a real, uh, there's a real stew boiling back home, not just in Salt Lake City throughout the world in the church, but it's concentrated in Salt Lake. And I think people are starting to reckon with what you're pointing to that traditionally it has been monolithic, uh, and now in a postmodern world, people have very different experiences of Mormonism. There are different ways to Mormon, as we say back home. And I think our tradition is starting to grow into a fuller maturity that can see that and respect it and celebrate it.
0: And the church is okay with that? The church hierarchy is okay with this?
2: I think the church hierarchy, my experience of the hierarchy is that they're a lay clergy, right? The people who serve in the Mormon church, they're, they're kind of called out of their communities and neighborhoods to serve the church. And there are people like you and I who want people to live spiritually satisfied lives. I think they're eager to to adopt anything that would work for people's happiness.
0: Um, I have been remiss in not asking about your relationship with your family. So how bad did it get at the time when you were you know, having this revolt? And what is it now that you've sort of got found your way back inside the church.
2: Yeah, that's that's a juicy question. Um at the moment, you know, I'm grateful for the friendships and the relationships we have. There's a long time in my life where I didn't expect to be in touch with my family. I went many, many years without really being on speaking terms uh with some people in my family, including your parents? Absolutely. Yeah. More more my father than my mother, but you know, even when my mom was available to talk to me, I had felt so much pain and alienation that I wasn't available to talk to her. And, you know, there's just a lot of pain all around. It's a serious thing in Mormon culture. When your kid leaves the fold, there are there are repercussions. Celestial repercussions. Yeah. No, thanks for pointing that out. It's socially, yes, but like doctrinally, you know, there are teachings that uh, the, the sins of the children fall on the heads of the parents. Well, and, and the
0: family goes, if I recall correctly, and forgive me if I'm saying this incorrectly, that the family goes to heaven as a unit.
2: Salvation and Mormonism is social, You don't get saved alone. We get saved. You know, the the community gets saved or we don't get saved. There's a strong element of that. So the stakes are really high and blood boils and it's difficult to sort through those things. So how are things now? I, you know, from my point of view, they're quite amazing. We've really mended to a great degree. Not that we don't have a lot more healing to do, but... You know, I think they've, I I had an epiphany, I'll start here, that in my late 20s when I felt all sorts of sorrow and heavy heartedness around just home life, you know, and family life. And I I think if I were to, like, point to what was really uh, bothering me about it, it's that I felt like I wasn't accepted for just honestly walking the path I felt called to and i had this epiphany that i was guilty of exactly that same thing towards my parents that there was a part of me that really begrudged their mormon faith and begrudged that they couldn't let me have my faith and so there was something in me that softened and realized if we're going to get the ball rolling i need to really learn to accept that this is the way of life here and that people care as much as they do and it's it's genuine it's authentic and even though i find it painful in my particular circumstances it, it it's an authentic belief. It really matters. And, and, and with your dad? Uh, I consider him a good friend. That's amazing. It is big transformation. It, it really is. Yeah. And I, you know, I have a lot, uh, to thank, uh, the practice is really what helped me kind of let go of a lot of hardened beliefs. And, you know, I carried a belief that we're never going to get better. We're never going to heal. I'm never going to talk to these people again. And as you know, as a, meditator, you start to see those scripts, you start to see those thought forms that congeal and possess us. And they just, they softened over time. And I realized that, you know, it was kind of a form of insanity to latch on to this thought, like we can't just come back to the next moment and meet each other again. That's great. Um,
0: So you've gone so far now, this is how you came to my attention, which is that you've started... Uh, meditation group in Salt Lake City yeah. which got you a little bit of attention um and somehow popped you up uh, up into uh my radar um so
2: what is this group So the name of our group is the the name of our organization is Lower Lights School of Wisdom and we we go by the short name Lower Lights and Lower Lights just for listeners it's uh it's a phrase that comes out of an old Christian hymn uh, let the lower lights be burning and it's this kind of metaphor like we can we can through practice through cultivation of the spirit we can learn to be better people and serve one another so i won't get into it. it's a gorgeous little hymn and it felt like a nice intersection to me of the the paths that i hold really deeply christianity and buddhism and just to be clear
0: um, a lot of people won't know this but yeah. mormons consider themselves christians N- right. n- not a lot of there are that's a controversial in say evangelical circles sure they'll often argue that Mormonism is actually a cult it's not Christian et cetera. Right. Et cetera. but so I just want to make that clear in no, the minds you. of the yeah. listeners when you talk about Christianity yeah. you're talking about your own faith
2: absolutely so, I've got the bully pulpit here so I'm saying Christian Mormonism is Christian you, you, <laughs> go for it so uh, but,
0: but I wonder like was this
2: a controversial move
0: to make um, I know you say before that the churches has a reasonably open mind right now when it comes to people having differing views on the Mm -hmm. on the on uh, the you know taking a legal uh, uh, fundamental view of scripture but to add in this buddhist meditation practice uh, how did the community feel about this and and was it difficult to attract people to come do this
2: with you It's a great question. And I I think I want to look at the kind of macroscopic level for a minute here, because I think what we're doing in Mormonism is actually happening all over the planet. The way I would sum it up is that we're looking at how we can share this kind of life-changing practice with different demographics, people of different persuasions. I happen to be brought up in the Mormon church, and I got to a place in my practice where i i felt a pain that people back home weren't going to experience these beautiful teachings that are part of our human heritage and so i got really serious about sharing it and like i said about the church leaders i you know i think you need to be careful when you introduce a completely new species or religion into another religious context but that's really not what we do at lower lights i I think when we're at our best at lower lights, we're taking universal human principles, practices that transform us, and we're translating them, hopefully responsibly, into a Mormon language that people can understand and they can run with in their own spiritual lives. And I, you know, I see you doing that in a different context. You're translating meditation into a language that Anybody in the, let's say, the modern working world could pick up and say, yeah, that's me. I could do that practice. So there's a, there's a big movement and effort right now to make these teachings more available, I think.
0: And so to take me inside what a <clears throat> meeting – what are the – What's a meeting like? What are the practices you're referring to?
2: Yeah, that's that's a big question. I want to say also that uh, it's not just Mormons that come to our events. That's actually a big part of our social function. That if you know, Salt Lake City to this day is still quite divided between Mormons and non-Mormons. So a big part of our mission is: can we create a meditative holding environment where people with very different belief systems can come together and actually, you know, recognize one another's humanity? So that's a big part of what we do. Uh, we need to do translation work for uh, the Mormon community as much as we need to do translation work for other kinds of people who come to our events. I language the teachings differently to teenagers who come through the door than I do, you know, to you know people in their fifties and sixties and seventies. So there's something generational about people. Absorb the practice.
0: But that must be tricky for you in terms of languaging it for an audience that's both Mormon and non Mormon.
2: It is. It's a it's you know, we're really holding a space that it's there's a lot of tension in holding that space, but I think there's also huge potential to bring the community together and as you, well.
0: And you are attracting active
2: believing mormons yes absolutely that's that's a big part of our mission to engage the whole spectrum of humanity it's it's easy enough to get into let's say a secular mindfulness practice and share it with the people who are going to flock to it anyway but to really hold out for every kind of human being who could potentially walk through the door and offer them an experience where they feel honored and met and seen that's that's an art that we're, we're students of. We haven't mastered it by any means. But our intention is to really hold a communal space, which hasn't been done traditionally where I'm from.
0: It's not infrequent for me to hear from believing Christians mm-hmm. that—and I'm now I'm talking about what, what yeah. would traditionally be understood yeah. in, in the broader culture— christians that that meditation might be some way a threat to their you know it, it is derived from eastern spirituality <laughs> um it might you know and there, there actually are evangelical pastors who will tell folks that that this is you shouldn't be doing this right or yoga right um what do you say to a mormon who might be who you know might you know want be attractive on some level to this practice but have concerns
2: yeah, it's, that's one of the essential questions we're working with. Um, we start with where the tradition is. Um, there are teachings, practices that already exist in Mormonism that lend themselves deeply to meditation. I don't, I don't think about meditation as a graft onto the tradition. I don't think you're implying that either. I happen to be trained up in the Buddhist tradition primarily. But when you survey the world's wisdom and contemplative traditions, you start to see patterns, you know, cultivating concentration is universal. You see that across all the traditions. So to talk to Mormons about concentration and point to scripture that says we're asked in our holy scripture to uh, keep a single eye on the glory of God. It's, it's a poetic rendition in scripture of focus focus your mind focus your heart focus your attention on what is higher what is ennobling and there there are ways There are really natural entry points into the practice because it's a human practice there have been different expressions of meditation across different traditions and geographies for thousands of years but they're all human practices and so you know what we do at lower lights If we're doing it well, again, it shouldn't be foreign to anybody. We hope to really communicate directly to people's humanity. And I think meditation is a really beautiful way of being human together. And how's it going? it's crazy good you know like we it's really picked up fast um in terms of people who come to the events people who want to support our organization and people who want to share our story people like you who we're really grateful to because more people hear about it but it's you know it's the organization's been growing faster than we can keep up with it and we hope to just get to keep doing what we're doing feels like important work
0: I'm curious about your personal practice before we started rolling. You said that you had just come back from a retreat, but it was in the yeah. uh, contemplative prayer tradition.
2: Uh yeah, that's
0: right. So what what does that mean actually? What can you what what is the practice?
2: It's interesting. So I was at a retreat with Cynthia Bourgeau in North Carolina, uh a beautiful teacher, a real master of the tradition. And the the practice in Christian Centering Prayer, it's, it's very simple, not an easy one, but, but the basic practice involves noticing when something is occupying your awareness. So It's often called an object of awareness, whether it's a thought, whether it's a feeling, etc. And you'll, you'll come back to your prayer word. Or if you don't use the word, you'll just practice letting go of whatever the particular contraction in awareness is, whatever the particular fixation is in awareness at a given moment. You just let it go. And so it's this basic practice of noticing when awareness grips on something and practice letting go. And... You know, having done a lot of practice in different traditions over the years, I I see the unique languaging and the spirit and the different emphases that come up in Christian Centering Prayer, but I I recognize it in Buddhist practice and Hindu practice. And my sense, I don't know if we have the science to back this up today, but I, I sense that there are probably universal mechanisms that the world's traditions are intuitively training and we still tend to think about them in terms of compartments. You know, there's Buddhist meditation, Christian meditation. I think over time we may discover underlying mechanisms that train a suite of meditative skills. Anyway, that's somewhere down the road, but to answer your question, you know, to me, and part of this is just my interference as a a Buddhist meditator. I tend to see, You know, Christian meditation is oh well, that's Buddhist too. Um, You know, there's a certain um, uh, bias in the way I perceive things, but uh, that that's what it amounts to. And
0: if you're using a prayer word Mm -hmm. in this centering prayer
2: practice, Mm -hmm. so is that kind
0: of like having a mantra?
2: Uh, It's different than a mantra, and that a, a mantra is something you will rehearse. You will repeat it over and over, so it will bring the mind back into concentration. The mind wanders, and you bring the mind back. This is like almost like a reverse engineered mantra and that you're not you're not using this sacred word until you notice that the mind is pulled away. So in theory, if you're not if you're not occupied by any objects, you know, for a period of time, you're not reciting the mantra. You're not using the word at all. So it's a lot of people confuse the two, but they're. They're actually training different aspects of awareness, where if you say on one side of the spectrum, there's concentrative awareness, and on the other side of the, the spectrum, there's a kind of an expansive quality of awareness. The, the Christian Centering Prayer Method helps us return to expanse, return to expanse again and again.
0: So when you, if you're not aware of any objects, if you're not aware of anything specifically, mm-hmm. what, what's, what's happening?
2: Well, that's uh, that's another conversation. That that touches on, uh, you know, what they refer to in Buddhism as cessation or shunyata, zero. It's, you know, if you're not aware of any objects, then, you know, at the deepest level of that, you're not aware of anything, you're not aware of awareness itself. It's a kind of luminous emptiness. I don't know how to language it better. That's kind of my Buddhist background coming in, but it's, uh, you know it's uh, uh incredibly rewarding non-experience experience <laughs>
0: <laughs> but is that happening to people in, in in centering prayer or is it more just like you're just continuously letting go of things that come
2: through i think it is i think in buddhist terms and classical enlightenment terms people who are doing centering prayer wake up you know they they have that moment where they recognize that it's not a subject looking at an object but they they touch into the nothing the the zero of experience and then all of a sudden what arises in the next moment is you know they, they have the experience of being everything they're merged with everything for for a split second for a minute for a day for a lifetime you know I, I, I know people in that tradition who really have deep practices and awareness and it seems to be taking them in a similar direction that you know the meditation i've done for years has taken me so
0: so it's amazing that you have these practices that all emerged in cultures that are disconnected in mm-hmm. time and in in geography mm-hmm. so i what is that
2: right i mean it on one level, it's kind of a mystery. I don't know what it is, uh, the, the perennial philosophy that Aldous Huxley referred to, that these, it's coming up, these teachings, these practices, they're everywhere. What is that? And I think human beings just have a certain genius for you know, if, if there's something if there's an edible shrub in their physical environment, they'll find it and they'll find a hundred ways to cook it and make it taste delicious. And if our internal environment is like more or less the same, then we'll find a hundred ways to cultivate a life where we're not suffering so much. I mean, I think there's something just uh intuitive and innate about these traditions that crop up. And I'm I'm quite fascinated by this great human tradition where we're learning how to not just master the external environment, but, you know, how to make more of a home to come home to in our internal environment. If, you're, if you've are if you
0: been able to introduce meditation into what one would imagine to be a deeply
2: inhospitable environment,
0: yeah. what does this say about the future of organized religion in America?
2: Yeah, no, I love that you asked that question, because it's one I'm really passionate about. I hope over time that the work we do in the Mormon community can become a case study of how, like, you can engage your particular neighborhood community cultural context. And we can, we can share with you what we've learned about how to do that well and what doesn't work so well. And of course, there will be specifics to, you know, meditating in Mormonism that will just apply to how to introduce that practice in the Mormon church. But I, I think there will be universals too. And I think over time, more and more people will figure out how to apply it in novel ways. And really, that's the injunction of the practice. It's in Buddhism, it's the bodhisattva vow that, you know, to the extent that we've received any goodness from the practice, we want to share that. We want to be really generous with it. So I'm really hopeful over time that, you know, we'll be part of a global network that says, hey, we've got our case study here. And if, you know, we've gotten emails from, you know, people in Protestant traditions in Australia saying like, hey, what would you say about like, here's where I'm working here. Do you have any pointers? I mean, it's already starting to gel a little bit, but I think there's potential for more of it.
0: And I imagine the advice you're giving is often along the lines of, well, here's how you can make people comfortable doing that. This stuff isn't going to attack all of their core beliefs, et cetera, et cetera.
2: At this point, a lot of what I do is listen and just try to have a respect for how different the environments are before I assume the sameness of the environments. I think there is a lot of sameness, but I, I try to just really take in, like, so what What are you working with? And let's have that conversation. But I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for people, and I'm hopeful for humans. And you mentioned religious tradition. I, I'm finishing up a book right now that looks at that a little bit. What will religious experience look like in the 21st century? I think there's room to argue that, we're not just secularizing in the twenty first century that we're we're shifting our aesthetics. We still want higher meaning. We still want to live the good life. We want to know joy. We don't want to suffer. And a lot of these practices have traditionally been held by religious traditions. But these religious traditions were designed thousands of years ago for a different task. So I, I see the traditions getting reinvented and I see this kind of work as part of that work
0: yeah, I mean we're in an interesting moment in history where most millennials are what's called n- nuns right n o n e s not n u n s that yeah. that they don't embrace any organized religion, but that doesn't mean, as you said, that they don't want to search for meaning or have what spirituality in their lives whatever that may mean to them
2: right like a community that will witness the birth of their first child or or marry them or bury them you know just community rituals um practices that uh kind of fill us like whether that some people read scripture as a practice some people pray some some people you know go running at central park but we we have different practices that you know uh help build resilience to you know human life itself which can be really difficult and we're seeing a breakdown of faith and you know i think the the claims of a lot of these traditions so how can we how can we take the best of what these traditions have passed down to us but leave behind the limitations maybe maybe belief systems that that strain us a little bit too much we can't sign up for all of it but we certainly want the goodness of the tradition the lineage the history the community
0: this has been such a fascinating interview. Is there something that I should have asked you but didn't? Any areas that you would have liked to have touched on that I failed to bring us to?
2: Um, I appreciate the question. Uh, you asked a little while ago about, so how is this working in Mormonism? Something that uh, excites me, something that I think has allowed us to exist and persist and flourish to some extent, is that there's a really strong uh Value in Mormon culture to look for truth far and wide and bring it back and you know corral it into back into the tradition. You know if there's anything good, if there's anything that can elevate us as human beings, we're interested in it. So that's the uh, that's the enterprise we're engaged in at Lower Lights, and yeah, I think you'll see more of us.
0: If people want to learn more about you, how can they do that?
2: The best place is our website. It's LowerLightsSLC.org. So the phrase I talked about earlier, Lower Lights slc.org how about you on social media um i'm pretty lame at social media (laughs) i don't do a lot of it but you could google me and i you know we have articles and meditation resources we have a podcast mindfulness plus yeah absolutely so the podcast is mindfulness plus that's with a plus sign and you know a lot of our you know teachings and things like that that we do as a community i try to you know put into the content of that show
0: awesome yeah and uh when does the book come out
2: uh, I'm getting through the manuscript, so it could be probably a year-ish before we're actually, unless I, you know, pull a move like you and brother Jeff Warren did. and <laughs> Don't write a book. <laughs> it's the worst. Um, thank you very much. Yeah. Great, great job. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank absolutely. You. Yeah, thank you, Dan. I appreciate it.
0: If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
2: If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. (gasps) Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know.
3: Hey, grownups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself